I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the final stretch of the year for stocks. The S&P going for a new all-time high, and the investment committee is debating how far this rally can run. Joining me for the hour, Bryn Talkington, Jim Laventhal, Joe Terranova, and Steve Weiss. Sarah just said Santa Claus rally off and running. In fact, it is. We are green across the board today. So we'll continue to watch the major averages. Eight weeks in a row, Joe, of gains. Mm-hmm. 4,800. Watch it on the S&P because it's been a minute. We haven't been above that since January of 2022. That's just correct. shows you this run that we've been on, the momentum that we seem to have back. And the question, as I pose at the very top, how far can we go? Keep playing offense. That's what I believe. That's what I see as we move into the month of January. Play offense and the broadening out of the market. The Russell is strong once again today. In fact, you actually have energy, which we'll talk about later in the show, in which the momentum seems to be building to the upside for a breakout. That's what I'm seeing. But it's about the market right now understanding that yields have pulled back aggressively. And Scott, once they got below 4%, you asked this question a couple of weeks ago, what happens when they get below 4%? Well, I'll tell you what, they've gotten below 4% and they've stayed below 4%, yeah, which is interesting. I think is the 10 year today. Yeah, so we never really saw the bounce. You know, you figured you would see a break below 4% for a 10 year, and then you'd see subsequent to that a little bit of a bounce. You haven't had that. So staying below 4%, that's a good indicator for risk. Yeah, is that how you see it as well, Bryn? I mean, it seems what Joe's saying is, is spot on. I think that this is one of the strongest seven days of the year, starting last Friday. And then we all know, as the first week of January goes, goes the first month, that sets the tone for the first year. I will say it feels a little reminiscent to 2017. Uh, we had more volatility this year. But remember, going into the first month of 2018, the S&P was up five and a half or six percent. And then, you know, boom, back in February, gave it back, gave about half of it back. So I feel like we're setting up a replay of that. I do think that the market is a little bit at odds with the Fed. I don't buy into the six or seven rate cuts. I think that's just too aggressive. So I think dance while the, you know, dance while the music's playing. But I think as we get closer to March, which feels really long, really far away. I think that the market's going to come to the realization that we're probably not going to get a rate cut that soon. And then that can give us an opportunity for some sell-off. I'll tell you what, Weiss, you know, we had a former Fed economist on Squawk on the Street earlier um, with Sarah and I, and she made the point that the last mile is going to be the easiest. Whereas I think that's a little counterintuitive. People think the last mile of getting inflation to target is going to be the hardest part. If she's right, this former Fed economist, then what does that mean for markets? Well, it, it means that the market's going to perceive that you will have those six rate cuts. I'm in the camp that you're not going to get them either because they want to make sure that they're staying power to low inflation. Because don't forget, you've got massive government spending and you've had a real massive easing of financial conditions with, as Joe pointed out, you know, the 10 year coming down and other rates coming down. So look, so I think, you know, for the next for this week, so for the next three days, it's clear sailing, no real data to think of. Uh, then as you get into January, uh, then it's going to get a little tougher. The questions are going to be what are earnings going to look at? Are we going to have more types of a FedEx 
or a Nike situation. Stocks that did very well, particularly Nike did well in the last couple of months. FedEx had a good year until they didn't. Well, see, this is a good point you make because, you know, earnings are only expected to grow 5%. You take out energy, it's a little higher than that. Right. But so many stocks have been up so sharply in a short period of time. What does that do to the earnings bar? It, it makes it higher, right? Raises it up. Yeah, without a doubt. So, uh, so you've had massive multiple expansion in this market. That's really what's driven it, not the earnings growth. And also what's driven it is the multiple expansion. Nobody goes in and says, I look for this multiple to expand. What they do is they say, hey, the Fed's going to be cutting at some point. That narrative is still going to continue. So that's really the conundrum, right? If earnings season disappoints, does that mean that the Fed's going to cut sooner? That's going to be the perception. So I think either way, you're sort of okay in the market, but it's going to be critical where you are. So I still think mega cap tech is going to do well. Others will do well. You'll see the market continue to broaden. But the biggest thing to get in the way of the market right now is what I just said, that everybody believes there's no bear case. Well, there's no negative. Okay, so you raise a good point. And Jim Labenthal, that's exactly where Ed Yardeni is going today with a new note he has where he says, quote, perhaps we have nothing to fear, but nothing to fear. <laughs> the point he makes is quite obvious. Goldman Sachs today, the caution, the, the simplest fact that there really are no caution signs out there. Um, you're starting to get those kind of notes come out like everybody's on the same side of the boat. So watch out. Yeah, I, I think there's legitimacy to that concern, but I would label that a short-term concern, Scott, meaning, as I think you led the show off, we've had eight weeks in a row of gains. Of course, that's got to stop at some point in time. Uh, like Bryn and Joe, I think you're supposed to stay on offense for the immediate short term. This is a light trading week, and the trend is your friend in that sort of week. Um, but at some point, whether it's the first, second week in January, things have to pause. My overarching point, though, is that I'm not very worried about what happens in the short term. You mentioned 5% uh, earnings growth in the fourth quarter. You know, for the full year next year, earnings growth is projected at 12%. If that comes through, then that is very supportive to future gains in the market. Now, that's the big if that we need to see. And that's what earnings really, the upcoming earnings season really matters for, is confirmation or not of whether the full year is going to be as good as the market not only expects, but needs in order to continue to rally from here. Here, Joe, is one of the interesting issues that I think investors need to take stock in, so to speak. Ari Wald Oppenheimer says, let your winners run. Mm -hmm. And I think he speaks to something that all of you are probably thinking about now. Tactical conditions are not currently attractive for purchase, right? That's an obvious statement to, to make given where we've gone since November 1st. You know, the, the market's up 15%. 15.5% is the S&P since November 1st. So while he says, okay, tactically it's not so attractive, um, there's no reason to sell either. That's the thing. You, you just said stay on offense. So I say, well, the market's overbought. Yeah, okay, well, it can stay overbought. It could, it could stay overbought, and you could also get a little bit of a modest correction correlating with earnings. I agree with what Stephen's focusing on. Well, but that's not going to be happening well, for a little bit, well, earnings, no, right? It's, it's, well, you've got about three weeks until that happens, but maybe that not can happen in three weeks, as we learned from November. Absolutely. And maybe that offers some relief to the market, but, but I kind of agree as you look forward and you move into 2024, you know, focus on where the earnings growth is actually going to be. The earnings growth, the earnings recovery is coming around now. Now to small cap companies and small cap companies are going to be feeling the benefit 
of not having that cost of capital continuing to be a moving target and ultimately at some point in 2024 having the cost of capital move lower. So maybe the opportunity isn't so much in capturing the earnings growth where the earnings growth has already been and that's been in the Nasdaq. Remember the earnings recession that the S&P, the Nasdaq and the Russell were all in at one point in 2023. The Nasdaq came out of that in July. The S&P followed in October. The Russell is still in that earnings recession. So I think the real opportunity longer term is going to be in that broadening out than the relief that's being offered to small cap companies. So, Bryn, it's like, you know, mm -hmm. Yardeni with the nothing to fear, but nothing to fear. Evercore the narrative switching from what can go wrong to nothing can go wrong to the Goldman note, the cautionary sign is that there isn't any. How do you make sense of that and the way you're thinking about this market in the here and now? I think in the here and now, I mean, clearly technicals. We saw obviously that blip the other day when when the market sold off. I mean, the RSI is still incredibly over overbought right now. So I think we're going to continue probably to grind higher because trading's light. And I, I agree with Jim, the trend is your friend in the last week. I do say, like I said before, I think we're setting up where January is going to be somewhat of a continuation. But we will have a flushing out, though, because it's just like not a healthy market just to continue to go up day after day. And don't forget, by the way, you don't really need a reason. I mean, the algorithmic traders can just come in and reverse on a dime. And so they've done it a million times. And so I do think, though, as it relates to small cap, I think that's an important point. I mean, how much of the move, whether it's small cap or biotech, was from rates are coming down versus how much is because these companies are exactly a that's that's exactly. And so that's where my point. That's where my <laughs> I my feeling is that those companies actually have a higher benchmark because there's been such this whoosh on the upside just because rates have come down, you know, 120 basis points on the long end. I think the proof will be in the pudding of whether or not those names will continue to be able to have this kind of showing they've had in the last six weeks. Some of these numbers, Jim, are just downright crazy. I mean, they, they're almost like you do a double take when you look at the fact that the Russell's up 23% since November 1st. And you... Forgive the investor who says this is crazy. I, I should this can't continue. I, I should take some profits in, in these names. What am I supposed to do with a big fat number like that? Twenty three percent in eight weeks. Look, look, I certainly understand that sentiment. I've never been really good about doing these short term trades in and out. So I focus on the long term fundamentals. Now, Scott, you'll remember last week when I put out my S&P 500 target that I told you we think that the return in small caps next year is going to be twice that of the S&P 500. And that's accounting for the fact that the long-term average on the S&P 600, which I'm using because it excludes the non-earners, I think that's important, but the Russell 2000 will march in tune with the S&P 600. But the long-term average multiple on the S&P 600 is 14. So when we talk about a bar being lowered because yields have come down, we should also remember that the bar is lower in terms of the earnings multiple as well. Now, certainly, and I said this just a minute ago, at some point there can be a pause in the overall markets and certainly in small caps. And maybe you pull back three, four, five percent. But I've found in my history that trying to time that usually gets on the wrong end of the trade. And I'm better to just ride through that because next year looks pretty darn bright for small caps. Evercore ISI Weiss says the fewest number of bears since 2018 on the small cap theme 
where we say the Russell's up 23% in seven and a half or so weeks. Tom Lee says small caps can do 50%, 50% return next year. Now, you may disagree with the, the power of that number, but directionally, do you look at small caps outperforming to at least a meaningful degree in a massive catch-up if we're right about soft landing? And by the way, I mean, you know, Tom Lee was bullish all year, and he's going to be proven to have been pretty right in his bullishness. Yeah, no, he, he is. Um, look, it, it, it depends on the banks. So there are a lot of small cap banks in there, uh, a lot of regional banks in there. And that real, those real estate issues are going to come home to roost. Uh, now, Jim's taking the position before that, that that's not a problem. We've been through that problem. I take the other side of that. That still is a major problem. They can't refinance the buildings. So where does it go? So they're going to turn over the keys, as they've been doing, and it's going to pick up. You can't write but off you don't, those you don't assets. Think, but you don't think that that, along with so many of these other issues, uh, has been overstated in any way of no. the, the near-term nature that it's, it's talked about? In other words, we went from, okay, real estate is going right. to be a disaster. It's going to bring down the, the regional banks. We're going to have a crisis related to that. Right. That was sort of pushed this side. And then we went to, well, the federal deficit is exploding. Right. The cost of financing that is going to cause a huge jump yeah. in interest rates. Well, we're not really talking about that today. Right. Or we haven't over the last few weeks since this rally in November started. But here we are bringing up issues about see, real estate I, and I, regional banks again. Right. I, I get intellectually, I get the problem with, with the deficit. Who doesn't, right? But in terms of it hitting the market, I don't really see it. Now, that may be bizarre, but I don't see it. In terms of real estate, just because we raise the issue far in advance of its eventual occurrence doesn't mean that we've muted the impact of it. So the market really discounts multiple times. When we all got into the business, you didn't have social media, you didn't have everything online. So now you have all that. You have brilliant people online saying, here's a problem. And then the problem doesn't happen, so you, so you mollify yourself, but right? But the problem doesn't become so acute all at once. We're, we're, we're no, acting, it's going to be rolling, and well, that's my point. Well, we're kind of acting like you're going to hit this date and you're going to have a tsunami of refinancings that right. have to happen when the maturities are different. They're all different. They, all are, they are all different, which is why I think it's going to be a problem for a few years to come, because mm. we've stalled at going back to the office. So that's the point. Absent that, then you've got energy to deal with. Is energy going to hold its bid? You know, Joe believes it is. Um, I'm not so sure. Uh, I think it will for a while. So there's the issue. Now, having said all that, I did buy a Russell ETF this past week. And because I want to, because I want to take advantage of momentum, which I see continuing, right? It's been a great performer. I think it continues to perform, and I think you have time to get out of the way of it if you're going to get out of the way. Brian, you want in? Yeah. So there actually is a time deadline on these mortgage refinancing. So commercial real estate, there's about a trillion and a half of commercial real estate mortgages. Um, Five hundred billion comes due in 2024. 500 billion comes due in 2025. And the vast majority of that is within the regional banks. It's not within the JPMs and the 
in the cities. It's in those regional banks. So you do have this trillion dollars, which is actually a very finite number over a very finite period of time over the next two years. Now, you'd have to say, and this is where I think there's opportunity, if you can go through and find like an M&T bank or go and look at these individual banks, I think there's a, a big opportunity where you don't see that. But I mean, a lot of things are crazy, but a trillion dollars within the regional banks that does need to be can't be kicked the can any longer, to me, is still an issue for small cap value because small cap value is dominated by the regional banks. Yeah. So I would be playing these names individually where you can go through and actually see and the CEOs will tell you what exposure versus generally saying I'm going to go back into the small cap value and just own them across the board. I mentioned um, the other day one of the best calls of the year is courtesy of Bill Gross calling essentially the bottom in regional banks. He gave four or five names that he had bought and those stocks have obviously had an enormous run since the the bottom real estate is up 20 and a half percent as well since november 1st so you always ask yourself where are you wrong in your assessment your bias moving forward uh, into the coming year and and as i do that i i think it's so critical to understand that maybe the possibility is there that nike that fedex was messaging something that we should be more aware of about the like economy. Canary, canaries in the coal mine, those Potent stocks? Potentially, well, you ask yourself where you're wrong and, and where I'm wrong about playing offense, in particular for small caps, is if Nike and FedEx are telling us something significant that the economy is actually decelerating more right now than we realize. And if the economy is decelerating MasterCard like that. MasterCard just said we did 3.1% in, in retail sales. I, I understand that. I'm playing the other side of the argument, and I'm, I'm trying to get the viewers to understand <laughs> where my theory could actually be wrong, where small caps don't outperform. It's in an environment where you have the significant economic contraction, and the Federal Reserve is pressed to move quickly in March to begin to lower rates in response to that. That's where all of this falls apart. Like if Jim, you're, you know, if you're worried about the consumer falling apart, to, to borrow that phrase from Joe, this holiday spend number from MasterCard suggests that we're, we're not there yet. Now, you can quibble and say, well, credit card balances are going up as delinquencies are increasing in, in kind, but there's still a willingness to spend. Sarah was talking about restaurants and spending their experiences, the cruise lines, Carnival, I think, is one of the best performing stocks of the year. Expedia, some of Joe's stocks in the travel space have done well. Even airlines of late have, have done pretty well, too. Yeah, and, and actually, operationally, all those sectors have done well for over a year now. It's just that the markets are finally believing that these uh, good operational numbers are not going to fall off a cliff. And I say that's absolutely right, because the sine qua non here is employment, and employment is still very strong. This, as the Fed may be cutting as early as March, I don't think the Fed's going to cut six times either, but let's face it, they've, they're done raising, and as they start to cut, that helps the economy overall, not, not hurt it. So, look, I, it's good that we're talking about risks, but there's also positives that I don't think we're talking about as well. So for the commercial real estate, that's obviously a negative. But let's let's look at uh, residential mortgages, which are starting to pick up. The housing market looks like it's bottoming. Now, these are at best green shoots, I will admit that. But it's headed in the right direction and should continue as rates come down. I think we've got a healthy, healthy balance between opportunity and risk here. Weiss, let's talk about a move that you made before we take our first break of the show. It's Transdime. You bought it. T 
TTG? Mm -hmm. Tell me, <clears throat> tell me more. Well, TTG, it's, it's, it's really a special company. And what the company designs to do, and what they say, if you go on the website, the About Us, they own 48 independent operating companies. And what their goal is, and they've been successful in doing it, is to generate private equity returns without the illiquidity. So all these businesses operate, operate autonomously. It's a little like, like Berkshire in that way, frankly. And Jim would like this. It's, uh, it's aerospace and defense. So about 60% is commercial, 40% is, uh, is, uh, is government, uh, military. and. Uh, they are on every single aircraft in the world virtually. So they're proprietary designs. So it's one of these companies that I believe is a permanent compounder, and that's why I like it. So I get advantage of the tailwinds of the aerospace cycle. And by the way, if you compare the chart on a 10-year or 20-year or five-year basis, you'll see it's performed, in some cases outperformed, some of the mega caps, the Microsofts, the Metas, et cetera. So it's just very, very steady. This year, it's up almost 100%, so it's not an uncovered gem. But to me, it's just going to keep on going. Yeah, uh, it's getting a nice little move here. Uh, Joe, you own the ITA. I do. Yeah, no, this is a quality company that Steve is talking about individually when you're looking at it. It's a mid-cap company with a reasonable valuation, and they've delivered on uh, earnings and revenue growth over the prior eight quarters. Um, I like the purchase. Yeah. All right. How about you, Jimmy? You know, this is a stock that has always been on my radar screen. I haven't done a deep dive on it. But as Steve rightly points out, if you're exposed to aerospace right now, that's a very good thing. Um, both in terms of military and commercial, I mean, there is high, high demand for aerospace right now. All right, quick break. We come back. Our call of the day. Barron's making the case for one mega cap stock. It still says has a long way to go. Could lead the Magnificent Seven in 2024. We'll do it next. All right, welcome back. Call of the day. It is Alphabet. Stock hitting a new high today. Barron's talking about it, too. And that's our call. Joe why Alphabet could be the best bet among MAG7 stocks in the new year. It's expected to grow as fast as Microsoft, they say, with earnings forecast to be up 15%. That's three times as quickly as Apple's 5% growth. The stock trades for just 20 times. A discount, they say, to both Microsoft and Apple's 30 times. And it's gained 50% this year, but the multiple hasn't. Correct. And the cloud business has been defined as being disappointing witnessing growth of 22%. That cloud business is going to accelerate in 2024. I think it's a very important exercise to think about the MAG-7 and tactically understand where you're actually going to see the outperformance in the upcoming year. I agree with this call when you look at Alphabet relative, certainly to Apple. And by the way, Apple has been the underperformer of the MAG-7 yeah, so I far mean, year to date. It's up 48%. All right, it's up 48%, but it's the underperformer of the MAG-7. If I look at the 2024, I see Apple underperforming once again. But I like the position that Alphabet is in. As long as you tell me, again, I go back to what I said before, the economy holds in. We don't see the deceleration because if we see the deceleration, I have to worry about ad spending at that point. Otherwise, ad spending is going to be strong in a year where you have a presidential election and the Olympics. I like what they did in the acknowledgement, at least, of artificial intelligence not being where they wanted it to be relative to Microsoft. And I think Alphabet has the clear potential to be a leader in the MAG-7. And lastly, 
the last several years, they've been buying back stock. They're actually implementing the Apple and Microsoft strategy. If they continue to do that, I think this is an obvious name that you want to continue to own as a core holding. Weiss, you own it as well. And Barron's is not naive to the fact that, you know, they suggest the company was caught off guard by Microsoft related to AI, but that it quickly regrouped. Mm -hmm. And if, they, if there wasn't a perception that they were still going to be a player and a major one, the stock wouldn't have done what, what it has for, for this year too, which is no slouch either. It's right up there with Microsoft. Yeah. On a day, by the way, where there's reports and we're talking about OpenAI having a valuation of $100 billion. Yeah. Um, look, very few companies have a product that becomes a habit, that are habit forming. You know, we had cigarettes and that wasn't good for you, but we've got Google and that's habit forming. Where else do you go? You go to Chrome, you go to Google. They've got a massive installed base when you take a look at their operating system. Yeah, but the whole point right. though of this the skepticism right. is that, but, yes, but, where do you go? Right. You always did go. The question is, are you going to continue to go? But here's my point. For all the hoopla about AI that we've seen, it's not really prime time ready. So Microsoft came out earlier. Chat that is. It was, well, chat is, but not really. If you take a look at chat, I mean, it's usable, but it's not where it should be, where you're going to rely on it all the time. Right now, I'd say it's more than intellectual curiosity. So my point is, when you have a habit from a company that's a habit, that is not a startup where they can be put out of business by Microsoft. What it does do, it gives them a lot of runway to catch up, and they can catch it up. And by the way, Meta's not the only company that got more efficient over the last year. So did Alphabet, very efficient. They got rid of a lot of vanity projects. They decided where they're spending their capital. They are buying back stock. So that's why I own it. To me, you've got regulatory issues, but those same regulatory issues are facing Microsoft, they're facing Apple, they're facing Meta. So you These just- These guys don't care about any of that. They're like, yeah, well, the, the regulatory issues may be there, but Alphabet might be worth more broken up anyway. Exactly, exactly, and that's always, that remains to be seen, but that's gonna keep the bid under the stock. And why, when they lost that lawsuit for last week or the week before about the App Store for gaming, the stock didn't budge. I was kind of surprised at that. I thought there'd be a short-term opportunity to buy more, but I never got it. Yeah. Jim Labenthal, you own this too. It's actually my biggest tech holding, Scott. Um, and, you know, apropos of our earlier discussion, I think this is a stock you can buy right now. Um, that's my opinion based on also an opinion that the market has held this stock back still on the belief that Microsoft is going to eat uh, Alphabet's lunch. I think that's kind of Brad Gerstner's position. I think that's a mistake for the reasons that uh, Steve was just laying out there. And, you know, as Joe was pointing out, unless things really fall off the cliff, the advertising business is going to be good. The web services are going to be good. This multiple is about two-thirds, maybe 70% that of Microsoft. I think that's a bargain. I don't think it should be at a discount to Microsoft. Bryn, you don't like it. Why? Well, well I mean, now that I don't like it, we all use it. but. I think Joe did a wonderful it. job. Right. right. You own a lot of these. For, you own a lot of tech, but you don't own mm -hmm. this one. Yeah, exactly. And so I think Joe did a great job on the on the thesis. So my question is, well, why is it still at a 20 multiple? And when I look at it and take a step back, the two big things is 90% of the revenues are ads. 9% of the revenues are Google Cloud, and it's barely profitable, but it's 25% of the employees. And Steve, I agree, they cut back on a few things, maybe like massages every week. But to me, when I look at these companies that are executing, when I look at Nvidia, when I look at even Apple, when I look at Microsoft, Meta, you know what you have? You have visionaries, and Satya is not a founder, right? Satya was the third 
thir third one in, you know, past Bill Gates. You have a visionaries that are executing. And to me, okay, I don't own the stock, but I follow it or read the report. It seems like they just don't have that come together where we are going to do one thing or two things very well. And it seems that to me, the whole thing about open AI, I mean, they bought DeepMind forever ago. And so to say that they were flat-footed makes no sense. To me, they're trying to be like a fast follower now and trying to catch up because I don't think they have that leadership from the top that allows them to actually have strong multiple expansion. And I think that leadership is one of the reasons it still has a 20 PE. Real quick. No, she, Bryn's right, and that, that's where I was going to go with the conversation. Alphabet trades at a discount because there's no Tim Cook, there's no Satya Nadella, and there has been questions surrounding management's ability to effectively move the company forward. And there's been failings in that regard the last several years, but I think that's priced in. What's this? I mean, what's the stock up on the year? Alphabet? Yeah. 60%. Is that a failing? Well, for the last year, no, that's not a failing. But in the last several years, there's been a degree of skepticism surrounding uh, management when you measure it relative to Microsoft and Apple. I think that's I, I think the, I, I, think the I, I don't agree with, with, with what you and Bryn said, but I think the discount and the multiple is what their business comes from. Microsoft's got a subscription base. That's recurring revenue, right? Whereas an Apple, basically recurring revenue because you're going to buy a new product. Installed base. Right. Google, you're waking up every day and saying, I've got to recreate the revenue. So that is not an installed base necessarily. Sure, it's default advertising for a lot, but I think that's the difference in the multiple. All right. So let's take a quick break. We come back from headache to hot spot. Healthcare stocks have been underperforming throughout this year, but could the sector be setting up for a big bounce back in the new year? We'll debate the space. We've got ownership as well. We'll do it next. All right, we're back. Biotech up double digits this month today. Piper Sandler says that sector is breaking out. Bryn, I feel like you sold the XBI yes. just a little too early. Yes. Yeah, I, I remember the day I gave up on XBI in the 70s. And then Josh was like, you know, it's actually just now breaking out. <laughs> and so I can't get them all right, definitely. So that was a really nice run if you followed Josh into the breakout. Well, what about from here? I mean, there are some who suggest that like Jonathan Krinsky, for example, that it's a good contrarian idea. Technically speaking, I mentioned what Piper Sandler is saying about the XBI and the IBB breaking mm -hmm. out to these new highs. It's back above the 50 and the 200 days for the IBB. Are we about to have a better year ahead? Well, I mean, it's not been a great three years for these spaces. It's important for investors to know I owned XBI, which are the smaller names, versus IBB, which owns like the Regenerons and the larger names. So it's like you need to pick your pick your flavor there. I think it goes to my, my point earlier, how much of the move was because something changed magically in biotech and how much of the move was the pivot from the Fed. And if I if I feel like it's the 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 latter, not the former, then I think, well, I think this this probably run is gonna is gonna come to a pause here. I do like, and I think we'll get into it again, healthcare, which has been another underperformer, but I think can actually individually have some really good returns outside of the Eli's and the Novos. Joe, I mean, whatever the catalyst might be, you know, whether it's rates coming down, fundamentals improving, or what have you, if if the space is set up for a better year ahead. Um, you know, does it really matter? You want to ride that wave or what? It's all, it's all, it is all about rates because, first of all, the XBI is an equally weighted ETF. The IBB is a market cap weighted ETF. So in the XBI, you're going to have a little bit more volatility because those smaller companies 
are the ones that have such sensitivity to where the cost of capital is ultimately going to be. So the significant improvement that we're witnessing in the expectation on where the cost of capital is going to be, it's reflected in what they've done in the quarter. The XBI is up 22%. The IBB is only up 10%. I say only, but it's underperforming the XBI. Mm -hmm. So it is clearly all about rates. And if the belief is that in 2024, we're in an environment where rates are going to be lowered, these smaller companies that rely on the debt market to fund R&D, they are going to benefit from that environment. So yes, you want to continue to focus on owning those type of companies. Jimmy, you sold Bristol a couple of weeks back, and now they're on this spending spree. Um, what do you make of it? Well, um, first off, I'll note that I'm on the acquirer side in general in healthcare. So, you know, AbbVie's one I own, and, and just like Bristol Myers, it's making a lot of acquisitions in the space. And then there's, you know, other, it, this is obviously a broad space. Healthcare includes CVS is an acquirer, Thermo Fisher is an acquirer. And yes, you can look at the IBB and say, okay, I want to pick a biotech uh, that's going to find a good drug approval or going to get acquired. But for me, that's always been too much of a roll of the dice. The bigger, more mature companies, which will be doing the acquisitions, are trading at very attractive multiples. They've had a terrible 2023. And I think they'll do well in 2024, not just because of mean reversion or because mm -hmm. of what Jonathan Krinsky is saying about the technicals, but because a lot of bad news is already priced in. I think the IRA Act from last year really hit these stocks hard last year in terms of government intervention. And while that may still continue, particularly in an election year, I don't think it's going to be as bad. Weiss, you trimmed Humana. Quickly tell us why. Just couldn't take it any longer. You know, it, it was a trading position went wrong. I still have UNH, and I think that'll do well. Humana will come back, but right now, election year, Medicare, you don't know what they can do in terms of pricing. So I'm just sitting on the sidelines. If I miss slight recovery, then that's fine. Okay, when we come back, uh, one commodity play has more than doubled the S&P this year. Bryn Talkington in that trade. We're going to find out if she's locking in any gains there when we come back. Oh, we're back. Uranium stocks heating up with the ETFs that track that space outperforming the S&P this year. Pippa Stevens joins us now with what's in store for this sector as we look towards next year. Hey, Pippa. Hey, Scott. Well, the URA and URNM up around 50 percent for 2023. And analysts say momentum behind nuclear power could push these stocks even higher. The gains come after an 80 percent jump in uranium spot prices this year, which are now hovering around a 16-year high above 80 bucks. And Jonathan Hinsey from UXC, which tracks the space, said prices could easily top 100. New reactors are being built as countries try to meet emissions targets, but we haven't seen a significant ramp in production. Next year, global uranium demand is forecast at 175 million pounds, while supply will be just 144 million pounds, according to Sprott Asset Management. And so far, Russian uranium has not been sanctioned, but there are growing calls in Washington to ban imports, which could also lift prices. Across the sector, names to watch include Cameco and BHP, as well as Energy Fuels, which announced a production restart just last week. Scott, back to you. All right, Pippa, appreciate that. Pippa Stevens, thank you. Bryn, you're in this trade. Yeah, this is part of our commodity portfolio. So what's interesting is the this is a very old, fragmented, sleepy asset class. 40% of the production is in Kazakhstan. Outside of that, you've got some African miners and then Canada and Australia. 
And so the cost of production is about $50 to $60 a pound. And so it's just recently, to Pippa's point, got to $80, but three or four years ago, it was at 20 The elephant in the room, the ax is China. This is not new news at all. China, I think, is building about one nuclear reactor per week. So we're not really doing anything in the U.S. It's really all about China growing that production. And then also from a sentiment or like a FOMO, there's only about 40 publicly traded uranium names. So that's why we own URNM, which owns most of those names plus spot. So you can definitely get some froth in the market. But I think that you could see, you know, URNM get to $60 by the end of next year, which still which would still be some really nice upside. Joe makes us think about energy. Nat gas is down a lot today, about 5%. Mm -hmm. John Kilduff on Squawk on the Street with us earlier this morning suggested oil could go below 70 soon just because of the dynamics at play, mostly around uh, demand and uh, issues of global economic slowing. That's interesting because I actually see the opposite in the near term. I actually see energy prices beginning to break out. I understand the reasoning is concerns about uh, what is going on in the Middle East, but just studying purely price, it looks like spot oil is breaking out above $76. The XLE is above 86 right now. Uh, and it looks to me like the XLE could go towards 88, 89 in the near term. Weiss, no interest it, in this space? You know, I, look, I mean, the answer is right now, no. I don't. Um, I just don't know. It's just so tough to predict it. It's so volatile. And I also believe the underlying commodity is not driven by fundamentals, but rather speculation. So that's why I have a tough time getting into it. Now, it looks like the war is broadening out. But who knows? If it does, then you see a massive uptick in oil. But you don't think that the price of crude is driven by supply demand? I do, but I think supply and demand can be driven, can be, you know, turned on. There's a lot of cheating that goes on. Um, so to me, it's just too tough. I've seen some of the best uh, energy traders go belly up at certain periods in time. So I just find it very difficult, highly speculative space. Jim, is energy going to do better next year than it did this? There are only a few sectors that are red, and it's one of them. Yeah, a very disappointing year. I think a lot of that has to do with uh, a failed recovery in China. Uh, you'll remember this time last year, everybody thought China was going to be off to the races. And that's hardly what happened. And along with it, demand from China for oil uh, sputtered. But I think two things can happen next year, actually three, if you will. One, the U.S. economy remains strong. Two, China recovers to some extent. And three, this is the thing that I can't believe we're still waiting for, which is the refill of the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve. That's a lot of empty space that needs to be filled with barrels of crude oil. So I, I think there's support on the demand side for crude oil next year. All right, still ahead, betting big on the Big Apple. Is the rights to build the first casino in New York City or up for grabs? Our Contessa Brewer following that money breaks down what's at stake for the sector's biggest players. She'll do it next. We're back now with the Battle Royal Brewing in New York City with the top casinos vying for a spot in the Big Apple. Contessa Brewer has those details for us. What do we, what do we know here? They, 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 let me just give you a rough estimate. $5 billion in gross gaming revenue for New York casinos. You've got 50 million visitors who come into the metropolitan area. You have 23 million or so people who live in and around New York City. So that's a lot of people <laughs> up for grabs. A Target lot of rich environment. Absolutely. And right now, if those people want to gamble, they have to go to Atlantic City or they have to go upstate or to Connecticut. And this would make another, 
in a city that never sleeps, it would just be one more <laughs> amenity to offer. You can see why the knives would be out and the casinos would be vying for this license. But here's the deal. The state is running a kind of Hunger Games competition where they're telling the casino companies, all right, you want a piece of this? Bid on what your tax rate will be. And let's see who the highest bidder is here. It's not just that. It's also just the license fees alone. That started at half a billion dollars. And my sources tell me at least one casino company has already gone to the lawmakers and said, oh, no, 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 we can top that. We'll bet a billion dollars that you give us the license. And so the competitors who think, hey, I'm already running, for instance, MGM is up in Yonkers. They run a slots facility. They say, okay, well, now we're forced to match that or do better because we really want one of these licenses. The scarcity factor is really coming into play here. There you're seeing just, I mean, an incredible number of publicly traded companies, but there are tribes that are vying for this as well, and private casinos that have paired with really well-known uh, real estate developers to try and get this. They're saying multiple properties, $6 billion, mm -hmm. $8 billion that they're ready and willing to invest if they get a license. But to woo the locals, they say, you know what? We're going to develop this anyway. Sands has said, we'll build something on Long Island. But without the casino license, it can't be a $6 billion resort that's going to attract in tourist dollars. Should, I get how, you know, it's a target-rich place, right? There's all these people, tourists and, and the like. Should, should investors care? The reason I ask is because the stocks, times can be the best of times. The stocks don't do anything. They are the best of times. Well, then what's the problem? The, the, Why is the, Wynn only up 10% year to date? It is Why is as, Las Vegas Sands only up 2%? It is as though those who believe casinos are dinosaurs in the desert <laughs> want to discount entirely the rebound that has happened, and not just in Las Vegas, although Las Vegas continues to be on fire. If you look at Macau, Macau is on track now for $23 billion in gross gaming revenue, and it is still way off of its pre-pandemic levels. It is though there is no credit being given to Wynn, Sands, MGM in Macau. Jim, why is that? Well, I, I think there's been this perception all along that, that the operating uh, success, particularly in Las Vegas, for Wynn is going to fall off a cliff, right? I mean, this has been the leading edge of discretionary spending, and people have worried that a recession is going to hit. But that's going away now, and actually you've seen a bid come back to Wynn. Um, now, in terms of expansion, by the way, I'd say there's three shots on goal for Wynn. It's the continued success in Las Vegas, which we should expect. It's Macau, which, as Contessa just said, is not being given enough credit for. And the third thing, before we get to New York, which they're not even, they haven't even handed out license, Wynn's got a, a expansion project in the UAE, United Arab Emirates, mm -hmm. uh, which they're already building, and that's a great expansion project for them. So, listen, as to why the stocks haven't done well, ultimately the cash flows are there. Scott, you know what I'm going to say. They're buying back shares. What more can I ask for? Well... Maybe sir, for some performance. Maybe for performance. <laughs> yeah. You can't have you. everything, Scott. Hey, I know it's a lot, but, yeah. you know, final trades are next. Let's do some final trades now. Bryn, why don't you start us off today? We talked a lot about small caps. If you want to invest in small caps, I like CAF. It screens for the 100 highest free cash flow yielding um, stocks on the S&P 600 with a 12.8% current free cash flow yield. Jimmy the Gambler. <laughs> 
and I'm going to have that song in my head all day, Qualcomm. Uh, it's yeah, you got to know when to fold them sometimes, pal. <laughs> you should listen to them more often. <laughs> Go quick. Okay, Qualcomm. Qualcomm is breaking out. All right, Weiss. Taiwan Semi, I think momentum keeps going on it. All right, Joe T. Momentum strong and energy right now. Diamondback Fang. All right, uh, Dow's good for triple digits at the moment. We'll see you later. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full halftime report disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash halftime report disclaimer.